Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321GO with Cosmo Macero. Then our own Lindsay Toghill joins us to talk about the state budget. And in two minutes with Tom, Ben Josephson from our office spends a couple minutes talking about the Pan Mass Challenge and his ride this week. First up, 321GO. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, UMass Boston and its student journalists are at the center of one of the most important battles over press freedom in years. We'll take a look at this potentially landmark case and the impact it may have far beyond just one college campus. And... Another day, another massive consumer data breach, this time by Capital One Bank, impacting over 100 million consumers. But is this kind of event becoming just a corporate crisis in name only? The odds of recovering any reputation and financial damage are actually pretty good. We'll explain. Finally, the Massachusetts State Pension Fund's investment arm, MassPrim, is once again tops in the nation among public pensions when it comes to private equity investment returns it's four years running. Mass Prim has topped this list. We'll discuss this achievement and what it means for over 300,000 state pension beneficiaries. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, how was your, your wild summer weekend in Marshfield? It was a great weekend in I, Marshfield. The weather was on my side. Was, uh, I have no complaints. I wasn't cyber stalking, but I caught a might have caught a Facebook photo of you at the Jetty in Marshfield, a local establishment. Went to the Jetty, had a great time. Live music, yeah. live band. I lo- I, I'm a sucker for live music. You are. Yeah. All right, great. Let's get to it. All right, Kyan, let's start with student journalism. UMass Boston, Mass Media is the campus uh, news organization at UMass Boston. When I was at UMass Amherst, I was managing editor of the Mass Daily Collegian way back when. There you before go. Before the internet. Um, anyways, mass media. One of media. the few daily college newspapers in the country. It still by is. The way. Yes. It's a it's a remarkable. Put a little plug call, in. The daily newspaper, often called the Daily Miracle, a remarkable uh, <laughs> accomplishment. But in this case, we're talking about UMass Boston. Six years ago, campus safety officers were searching for an unidentified man. There was a police report. He allegedly had taken photos of women around the university. Mass media publishes a story. Um, have you seen this man with photo and information? Uh, ultimately, that person, a former employee in the IT department, um, argued in court that the story defamed him and damaged his reputation permanently and forced him to leave his job. All obviously negative outcomes. He denied taking photos of women, and after they searched the phone, the majority were just sort of people riding the T or the bus. I don't know the Still purpose. Still possibly a little creepy. Of, I, don't, I don't know the purpose of those photos. Either way, uh, ultimately, uh, this comes down to a pretty significant statewide battle on press freedoms. Attorney General uh, Maura Healy has stepped in and t- to defend uh, the student newspaper and uh, its uh, its personnel. Um, what do you think here? It is. I mean, I was a I was a student journalist. I was a, a, a cub reporter. I was a big city newspaper uh, guy at one point here in Boston, and 
some of the fundamental public information that news organizations rely on every day are police reports about various Absolutely. incidents. Police reports, court reports, yep. things that are open and free to the public and anybody that wants to go take a look at it, I would also add. Like it's not just for reporters. No, this it's is public absolutely. information absolutely. that they take and make more public, yeah, so to speak. Um, uh, media censorship is such an issue right now, and I, I, I'm anti-censoring this. I think they were. I think they were in the right again yeah. because I come back to it was public information. Um, if this man had gone forward and been charged with something, they would have been doing a public service by alerting more people to it in advance indeed um i feel bad for him that this caused you know i i said maybe creepy about the picture before not creepy but a little odd perhaps yeah, no, without question um, his life was severely impacted and that is unfortunate however there are you know there are always two sides to a story um but I, yeah i mean the fact of the matter is there was a police report saying this and they reported on it yeah that to me is fair game that notwithstanding, Mass Appeals Court has concluded that because police never issued a search warrant or made an arrest, the information in the report wasn't protected. Now, not not it wasn't not public. It's public, but lots of things are out there available to the public that if you use in a certain way, you libel or defame someone, mm -hmm. right? So they're saying, okay, this is out there. It's public information. It's not protected. Very interesting, and, 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 and we're not legal scholars, and that's sort of, sort of not the point of this discussion, but it is a major uh, potentially landmark case in press freedom. It could have a chilling effect on gathering the news. Just anecdotally, kind of a funny thing. One of my earlier jobs as a cub reporter, the um, notoriously cranky police dispatcher, you'd call them regularly. Number one, you'd go in to look at the police log. Yeah. And then you'd call them regularly, like every day, twice a day. What's happening? What's and then and she would always say, "Oh, don't worry. You know, if something important happens, I promise we'll let you know." I'm like, "Oh, hey, thanks a lot. I'm probably still going to come in and check that log and call you twice a day, just because you know what the yeah. heck, right? Why not? I, I don't think I want to rely on the police to tell me when the news what they is. think is important. E also, uh, exactly. Anyway, interesting stuff. We're going to be following this one closely. Yes. All right, Kyan. All right, Cayenne, up next, Capital One Bank, big data breach, 100 million people impacted, um, Social Security numbers, uh, bank account numbers, uh, uh, no credit card numbers or login credentials, but certainly the social, the social number, the Social Security, that's the, the gold standard that's for the data breach because that unlocks, it's like, you, it's like a whole identity. You yep. can open all kinds of accounts. Um, and, and, and they have acted swiftly, as banks now generally do, and that's kind of the point of this conversation, acted swiftly to address this. Um, uh, a data breach does a lot of damage, and, um, and, and, and consumers really have to be, pay attention. But there's kind of a standard remedy or formula now for these large organizations, whether it's a bank or a credit reporting agency or some other organization that has large amounts of consumer data, to address it, and Capital One has taken these steps, um, and I think that's what you do to recover. Their stock, to, you know, took took a took a big hit. There was a piece in Market Watch by uh, by Brett Ahrens, um, a certain crisis communications and PR uh, specialist, 
uh, was quoted. Who that might be. Might be me, Cosmo Hussier, <laughs> quoted the story about this, uh, wrote a piece on this, and he basically says, hey, you know what? Um, these things happen regularly, and, and generally you recover yes. as long as you do the right things. And those right things are? Doing the right thing. <laughs> Letting people know. That's right. Being transparent about mm-hmm. it. Obviously, you identify, your technicians identify and, 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 and sort of seal off the issue. But then it's, okay, you make sure you notify all of your customers affected. You make sure you notify the public to let them know yep. so you don't miss anybody. You um, uh, then offer what's become kind of a standard remedy. And maybe it is or not good enough, but it's free credit monitoring for a period of time. Uh, uh, now, uh, lately, it is uh, a, a, a process to freeze your credit so nobody can open an account um, while using you're, your information. Using your information while your credit's frozen because it will kick back to the bank uh, and do those things. And of course, issuing a, a, a sincere apology. They've done all these things, and, um, and 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 they'll probably recover. What do you think? I think they will recover because pretty much everyone does these days, and part of the reason is that it has become so commonplace. The first yeah. couple data breaches, people were so scared and so nervous. Uh, absolutely. Now I feel like they happen. The first every, couple out of every th- few I mean, weeks. Every, I, I more think every, than that. Every, I, um, headline grabbers every you know periodically, every few yeah. weeks, every couple of months. But every Daily. week there is every yeah. da- there is some data breach. I mean, yeah. happening, and it's true. The playbook for crisis uh, response is very well worn, as I. Told my told my former colleague Brett Ahrens, it's a well worn playbook, and, and and you can and will recover, and I think we'll see that with Capital One. It is, and it's such a big company. They have so it, they've got all everything that they need. They have the resources to help protect their clients, and um, but again, I think part of the reason that these companies can recover is because it's so commonplace now. Um, people barely bat an eyelash when they found out find out that there was a data breach, which is really sad. It is sad. Thing. Um, so they're all helped by the fact that they're all being hacked, yeah. basically. Capital One took an immediate, like a $3.2 billion hit to its market cap. Um, uh, Brett Aaron's in this market watch story, sees that as a buying opportunity, he says, move in now, they will recover. Um, and, uh, he made a funny joke about the, what's in your, what's in your wallet? Well, for them, it was $3.2 billion less, but uh, they'll probably make that back. All right, Cayenne. Thanks. Thank you. All right, Kyan. Finally, the Massachusetts Pension Reserves Investment Management Board. It's the it's Mass Prim. It's the it's the investment arm of the Massachusetts State Pension Fund for the I think it might be the fourth year in a row. Definitely the second. And uh, they've been in this top rank in the top five in, in all the years the five or six years that uh, the American Investment Council has done this ranking. Number one private equity portfolio in America among public pension funds. That's the Massachusetts Prim um, private equity portfolio. They returned 13.63% over a 10-year annualized, annualized period. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's a terrific recognition, and it also is a reinforcement of why private, the private equity portfolio has become so important to the $74.8 billion mass state pension fund, upon which about 300,000 beneficiaries rely. Um, so it's the kind of recognition that is, you might at first 
past, say, oh, yeah, that's nice, and then realize, well, wait a second, that's really significant to a lot of public employees and retirees. It's a big return. Big return. And that means more money. Exactly. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right? You've, that's you've it. got it. And, 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 it's, and it's that simple. It's that simple. Um, it, the portfolio, I for the work that I do, I've, I've done over the years with Prim, it's, it's critical because it's consistently strong returns. Where other areas of investing in which uh, uh, obviously Prim or any major state, any major fund is going to be involved in, uh, can be very volatile, particularly the public markets, right? The stock market, probably the most volatile. Um, so you can't really just rely on sort of an index approach to just one investment category. That's why private equity uh, is so important. I know it's the source of some interest by uh, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren and others uh, um, and, and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren in terms of uh, um, areas of how fees are calculated. Nonetheless, the returns uh, are critical to this Massachusetts state pension fund, um, and that's uh, it's an important thing. Yeah, congrats to them. Good work. Um, we hope to talk to them actually about this and learn more about what goes into an effective private equity uh, portfolio when you're working at such a big scale. Uh, and one of the things I think we will learn, uh, uh, spoiler alert, is that being at that big scale is very helpful. It gives you access to investments that others may not have. Access is key. Access is key. All right, Cayenne, another uh, another great little segment. Uh, In the books. Here on 321Go, on the books, episode 56 of the OA on Air. That's great. That's Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Road, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera. Up next, Vice President Lindsay Toghill from our Government Relations Practice joins us to talk about the FY20 state budget. So this week, we are joined by Lindsay Toghill, Vice President in our Government Relations Practice, to talk about the budget. The FY20 budget this week was signed by Governor Baker. And for anyone that doesn't know, the, uh, the, the budget is important. It is the document that we use to really guide how money is spent and issues get worked on throughout the year. So Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in and talking smart stuff with us. We like that. Um, so the governor signed the budget this week. Yes, on July 31st. Important. We need a budget. Yes. <laughs> as does Everybody as you all needs governments. Budget. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about the FY20 budget? Sure. I can walk you a little bit through the process, if that makes sense, just as why it's important right now that he signed it. So every year in January, the governor files his uh, suggested budget, and the legislature then considers it. The House does the budget in April, the Senate does their budget in May, they go to a conference committee in June, and logistically they are supposed to have the state budget done and signed by June 30th, which is uh, the end of the fiscal year, and then July 1st is the start of the new fiscal year, so obviously that didn't happen this year. In the end of June, they pass what's known as a 112th budget, which basically just continues funding from the previous 12 months for one more month, and so it's a, a that's what got us through July. That's what got us through July. That is a stabilization budget. And so the governor didn't receive the budget until about eight days ago. 
and he took from the legislature from the legislature and he from the conference committee actually and he did sign it yesterday uh, very conveniently to give the legislature time to consider any vetoes that might have come from him and the legislature broke for the august recess this morning actually uh, august 1st starts the summer recess they'll come back again after labor day and so he was kind enough to sign the budget give everybody a bit of, of relief going home to their communities and also to give state departments some guidance on how money should be spent so i'll just talk a little bit about the budget the budget was a total of 43 billion dollars it's the highest level budget that we've ever had and that's not surprising considering state revenues keep coming in higher and higher which is wonderful it allows the legislature and the governor to really dictate how state funding should be spent what priorities should be financed for the upcoming year and where they'd like to go in the future so this year's budget featured a number of different initiatives, uh, but most notable was one to increase spending for Chapter 70, which is the local aid allocation for K through 12 schools to cities and towns. So this is the money that cities and towns are mostly spending on their schools, on their local schools. And that increased up to $5.2 billion this year, which is an increase of $268 million over last year. Wow. It's, it's really important because the number actually also um, represents a, a strong investment in the Foundation Budget Review Commission's implementation. So this is a commission that was established a few years ago to look at how funding is spent in Massachusetts, to equalize how funding is spent among school districts, and then to really continue for the future. And this is, now they finally had some money to actually implement it, which is fantastic. Spending in this budget was also very interesting because they prioritized a number of items that are considered safety nets, like uh, $179 million for homeless families shelter, $53 million for funding for homeless individuals, $110 million for the mass rental voucher program, some other changes to uh, fully fund or better fund, I guess I should say, DCF to really reflect the need that is there in, in taking care of children under the state's care. And so a number of these programs are really going to change the lives of a lot of people in Massachusetts. So we would be remiss. You walked through the budget process, so the governor gives his budget at the beginning of the year, and then it goes to the legislature, and then it goes back and forth, and you, you went through all of that. The, the budget that he signed was funding determined and established by the legislature. Correct. And he signed it with zero dollars vetoed which means he essentially signed off on everything that the legislature had decided they wanted to fund and how they wanted to fund it and to my knowledge and according to speaker DeLeo as well this has never happened before it never has and normally a governor regardless of party will try to establish their priorities with the legislature and make the legislature work for it in mm -hmm. some regards um, this governor has been very good about respecting legislative intent, respecting legislative privilege throughout all of his tenure. He's been very good about True. deferring to the legislature when he believes they're acting in the, re in the right uh, regard and not trying to create problems. That's a difference from some previous governors, not all. And the fact that he didn't veto a single thing, even though some of those numbers did not mirror what he had proposed in January, is extremely notable and and very laudable to be honest with you and i believe when asked about it he said he felt that it was a balanced budget and to him that was what was uh, of course important 
It is, and it, it not, not only was a balanced budget, but it was a responsible budget in terms of where they chose to make investments. Um, there was actually also a little bit of money set aside for the MBTA. They had not expected that $23 million to come to the MBTA. The MBTA is mostly off state budget. They rely on the sales tax, they rely on their own income, but as an authority, they are not directly funded by the state budget. Mm -hmm. So the allocation of some additional funding from that was pretty significant. One thing that the governor did mention in January and has been a priority for him throughout all of his tenure as governor was fully funding the stabilization fund. And this budget significantly set aside money for the stabilization fund, another $476 million to it. And that's pretty notable, too. There's a certain level that we'd like to be at. I don't know what that is. You, you might be, you're probably smarter than that than I am. Um, but also known in layman's terms to anyone else as the rainy day fund, which is basically the money that is there for us to tap into if we have a bad year and we fall short. And it's very interesting when former Speaker Finneran proposed the Rainy Day Fund at the last uh, boom that we had in terms of funding, a lot of people thought he was crazy. They said, why wouldn't you choose to just spend all of the money? And he said, we need to save some for a rainy day, which is where it became known as the Rainy Day Fund. And you know, as an individual, you frequently call it your emergency fund. If, yeah. if your car gets a flat tire and you need something else, and so the your fund, savings, your savings, exactly. <laughs> and so now this fund will be at about three point three billion dollars once they make this direct allocation from the state budget process. So the stabilization fund would offset any decreases in income tax or corporate tax in a fiscal year. That's really the purpose. Or if, you know, something were to happen, right, that we would need some sort of emergency funding for, we could tap into that as well and not take from something else absolutely and what frequently happens during a down economy is that the discretionary accounts and a budget are the first ones to go so things like chapter 70 local aid which is other funds that are given to cities and towns so that mm -hmm. they can function quite frankly um, some other obligatory programs that they have they cannot touch they cannot cut them below a certain level and so other things always take a hit the grants the development programs um, some funding within Health and Human Services, that always seems to come pretty quickly. And so what this Rainy Day Fund does is help lessen the blow in those regards. Which is great. Which is fantastic. So we have a budget. We have a plan for the year. Thank you for coming in and talking with us. Thank you very much. Smart I appreciate stuff. it. And in Two Minutes with Tom this week, it's Ben Josephson talking about the Pan Mass Challenge. So we are mixing it up this week for Two Minutes with Tom. Ben Josephson is filling in Good from here, here in our office. Thank you, Ben. You uh, thought you've been on the podcast a lot in many, wearing many different hats. Is this your first Two Minutes with Tom this, takeover? This is the first uh, Two Minutes with Tom. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. So you are doing something maybe some would consider crazy, but pretty awesome. You are participating in the Pan Mass Challenge this weekend. Yes, um, and for those who aren't familiar with the Pan Mass Challenge, it's become a pretty widely known regional event, especially mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. Um, it's a two-day cycling event that raises money for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And it's um, one of the largest uh, fundraising events of its kind. Last year, uh, delivered $56 million in unrestricted 
funds to uh, Dana-Farber. That's amazing. And 100% of what they're able to raise um, from donors goes uh, to Dana-Farber because there's a really generous network of corporate sponsors and others that sort of underwrite all of the actual logistics and production of, of the two days. And so it's, um, it's a really great way um, for folks who, you know, are inclined to want to give to the Dana-Farber, which is, you know, one of our countries, if not the world's great research institutions, mm-hmm. um, working on uh, therapies and solutions to, to beat back cancer. Um, and so it's been, a, it's been a fantastic experience for me. I've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, one of the Did things Did you say 17 years earlier? 17 years. That's a lot so. of years to be double bike riding two days in a row. It is, but it's become a really, like, meaningful part of my summer a meaningful part of my year and one of the things one of the evolutions at least for me personally at the PMC is becoming part of a community becoming part of a team um, for the last uh, 10 or so years I've ridden with a team that was organized by a nonprofit uh, here in Boston called year up which is a workforce training uh, nonprofit and they have put um, one of the most successful teams together uh, for the PMC I think we're in the top 10 most years raising, you know, over uh, collectively over uh, a half a million dollars uh, a year, every year. And so the PMC does a really good job not only building <clears throat> these communities of riders into teams, but connecting them to the work at Dana-Farber. So wherever you go, there are both, you know, children and other survivors of, of cancer that are very intimately involved with the events and with the teams. And it really, you know, it really, uh, brings to light uh, a lot of the great work that they're doing and able to, you know, I get to do my sort of small part um, <laughs> riding my bike to do the things that I could never do, which is the research um, in the labs at Dana-Farber. So it's a, it's a really, um, it's an important experience for me, but more, more importantly, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, opportunity for my friends and family and extended network and coworkers, um, some of whom have been giving almost all of those 17 years mm-hmm. um, to really give back. So it starts Saturday morning. It ends sometime on Sunday, depending on how fast you ride exactly. on Sunday. Um, you exactly. stop. You do a sleepover <laughs> down the Cape on Saturday night. Yep. Uh, what is? I would imagine that the most rewarding part is finishing. But what's the toughest part of the ride? I think that the hardest part of the ride is when. Well, certainly if it's if it's bad weather. Um, it's gonna ride, be hot this weekend. It's gonna be hot. But Not it, as hot. It, it's gonna be humid, but the temperatures are gonna be down. Um, you know, if it gets rainy, if it gets cold, that's really when um, the worst of it. Certainly on the second day, you know, depending on how you're feeling, uh, you don't think of the Cape as a very hilly place, but it's a fairly hilly second day, especially as you get to the last 10 miles or so through, um, through Wellfleet and Truro and, and Provincetown. But, you know, when, you, when you're all the way through that point, at that point you know you're finishing and yeah, you're everything's gone numb. well, and you can see, you can see, the, see the finish line, so to speak. Um, and it feels good. It's a very, it's a very sort of satisfying um, finish. To so event. if people who are listening want to donate, maybe not just for you, but to you or to the cause in general, where should they go? Sure. Uh, PMC.org for Pan Mass Challenge. Mm-hmm. Big, big donate button uh, up in the upper right corner. And they make it really easy. If you know someone who's riding, you know, you can put, you their, can put their name in. You could, if you know 10 people who are riding. Somebody asked me the other day. You know, I like to give to eight people. Can I do this in a way that I don't have to write eight separate checks? They make it really easy for you to do that. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, as a result, they've, they're going to raise over $60 million this year. That's amazing. Um, so really happy to be a part of it. And, and thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about it some more. Thanks for joining us, and good luck this weekend. Thank you. See you on Monday. <laughs>
Thanks to our OA team members who joined us this week, and thanks to everyone for listening, as always. Now, be sure to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be, or check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.